Yeah, Vaughn? Episode one of the podcast where we will be discussing the 1993 album In Utero by Nirvana. Nirvana. I've got my flannel shirt on. I've got my Doc Martens on. Can you see my Doc Martens? Yeah, we were 13 years old when this one came out. So hopefully... Hopefully some, some interesting discussion, a, a fascinating album to discuss based on context, based on development, and certainly based on the fact that it was the sophomore album, which is always interesting. It was also the final recording. And we hope to answer the question today, really beyond anything else, was Kurt Cobain a genius or just kind of a whiny bitch. Is there, is there a chance that he was both? There's a chance, but before we get to that, let's go round and round. Three albums on your radar. Nicholas, what do you like? And why during the, uh, pandemic i've ordered uh quite a few records and i bought three different box sets that have been making pretty consistent appearances on the turntable one is by steve miller band one is by humble pie and the other is zz top the latter i I really became inspired after watching that great documentary on on netflix so yeah it is good it's great it's excellent it's such a it's such an awesome story of of kind of a in, in some ways, an overlooked band. So for Steve Miller band, I've been really, really getting into the first couple albums, primarily Children of the Future, which is the debut. It's super psychedelic and it's nothing like what he did later. A lot of space and been really neat to listen to kind of those early days of Steve Miller band. For ZZ Top, I've really been given uh, Eliminator more of a top to bottom spin, just kind of realizing how what a great sounding album that is. And it's got some hits on it. And, but it's really cool to hear that kind of wet sound that they adopted at that point in their career on some of the other album tracks that I didn't know anything about. So Eliminator has been a regular thing. And then Humble Pie is kind of a recent discovery for me with Steve Marriott and early on with Peter Frampton. And uh, it's, that's been a, a really fun thing to get into. And for Humble Pie, I would say uh, the second album, Rock On, has been one that's made uh, pretty uh, regular appearances on the turntable. So that's what's round and round for me. What's round and round for you, T? Well, I, you know, I actually have a little bit of an unintended uh, theme to mine, which is these are all recent releases, releases from bands that kind of hadn't put much out recently. So the first is called A Steady Drip, Drip, Drip which is the 24th album by the band Sparks, who is a, is a duo that uh, put out its first record in 1972. 
and has kind of evolved into this, you know, art rock, very tongue in cheek duo from California that, you know, in a little bit of the spirit of a, of a public image limited or, or, you know, other projects like that, that have been around for a long time have really just kind of tried everything, including a, a hour plus a side all about the work of Ingmar Bergman. So they, you know, these guys have done pop, they've done dance music, they've done rock, they've done everything with a bit of a sense of humor. If you look at their song titles and their lyrics, they, they definitely don't. It is a certain art project. Um, and they're really interesting. I've, I definitely, as to your point um, about your box sets, I've gotten into this group during the pandemic of the kind of group that you can put all their work on shuffle and, and kind of listen to different things at random, which I don't usually like to do, but it's the type of band that you can do that with. And this is only their second uh, album since 2009. So they certainly haven't put um, as much out of recent, but I'm, I've listened to it a couple of times. I'm looking very forward to listening to it again. Cause you kind of never know what you're going to get from those guys. The second is from another band um, actually that, that you kind of got me into nubs, uh, called Sparta. And this is their first album since 2006. So it's been a while for those guys. And this is Jim Ward of at the drive-in, you know, who, you know, basically spun out of at the drive-in when Omar and Cedric formed the Mars Volta and Jim formed Sparta. And they've put out really, really good work, you know, over the last, you know, nearly 20 years here. Brand new band. For yeah. Sparta. Yeah. He's got a new lineup. It's called trust the river. It's very good. You know, yeah, still, is. still kind of taking it in, but obviously, you know, that, that's a band that you and I uh, went and saw probably on that porcelain tour, which was, you know, mid, maybe even early two thousands. Mid. Yeah. Yeah. So great to see them have a new record out and, and um, Jim Ward's fantastic. And, um, you know, really, really pleased to see new material out of those guys. And then the last is, is also a bit of an unintended segue into in utero, which is, and I didn't even know this until yesterday that the meat puppets have a new record out called dusty notes. And it came out late last year and it's their first since 2013. So kind of a theme here of, of bands that, um, you know, that hadn't put something out in a while. And this, you know, this effort, you, you kind of never know what you're going to get from those guys too. And this is very much in kind of an alt country kind of direction, kind of a folky direction, but it's very good. It's very, is that, very good. Is that with both Kirkpatrick brothers, Chris and Kirk? Yeah, you got both the Kirkwood boys are are still doing it. Um, yeah. Kirk Kirkwood doing most of the... Or Kirkwood, that's what it is, yeah. Yeah, yeah doing most of the uh, songwriting. But, you know, this is their 15th album. But it's it's really good, you know. It's you know they're they're a band that is kind of an interesting study, and there are certain things that remain like uh, you know elements of you know kind of psychedelicness and sort of stripped downness. It's a nice album. It's a nice definitely a, a band that was that didn't closely resemble its mainstream success. You know, the two albums they did that were uh, that were really popular really didn't sound like how meat puppets sounded early on and probably don't resemble what they sound like now would be my guess, but I'll have to check it out. I, I didn't even know they were still recording and still active. So I'll definitely check that out. Well, listen, part of this is, uh, 
you know, we're, we're going to give a little education to our audience. And part of it is we can educate each other. Isn't that just beautiful? It is. It's just it fantastic. Is. I'm feeling it. Are you, are you feeling it? I'm feeling it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm feeling it. All right. Well, now that we're feeling it and we can segue the meat puppets who certainly were in a scene that, that Kurt Cobain respected because he certainly made clear who he approved of and who he didn't musically over the years. And the meat puppets certainly fit into that category, but why don't we go ahead and, uh, without further ado, dig into 1993's In Utero. And, you know, as we kind of said from the onset, you know, hopefully it'll be an interesting discussion. I think there's a lot of context to this one. And, you know, what we hope to give is kind of a fair assessment of, clearly it's an important band. I don't think anybody can argue with that. But is this an important record? That should be an interesting debate. So why don't we uh, go ahead and get to the nerdy deeds, which are uh, done dirt cheap. Let's do it. You want some dirty deeds? Yeah. You want some dirty deeds? <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. I don't, you, getting Brian Johnson to do that for us, say, say nerdy deeds like that was, it wasn't easy. We, we kind of broke the budget on Brian. We don't have anything left. It's true. It took a lot to get him to do that for us. And in front of a crowd, too. A crowd, you know? a, a European-sounding crowd. Yeah. If you will. Yeah. So, Nerdy Deets in utero was both the sophomore and final recording for Seattle-based Nirvana. We probably don't need to spend too much time on the, on the band itself, but you know, clearly a, a huge influence on the early nineties grunge movement, a, a rather legendary band that probably will, you know, live on for a long time, particularly, you know, certain songs that were, that were pretty important more so off of their first album, Nevermind, which I think when we talk about in utero, you got to talk a little bit about Nevermind. But the, but the nerdy deets on this one is, you know, this was recorded uh, in, in rural Minnesota throughout 1993 at a studio called Pachyderm, which, which actually um, was also where Grave Dancers Union, the Soul Asylum album, was recorded. Now, those guys are from Minnesota, so that one makes a little bit more sense. And... By the way, that one was produced by Michael Beinhorn, who, boy, this cat knew what he was doing. He did Super Unknown. He did Celebrity Skin by Hole. He did the Verb Pipe self-titled album. He did Osmosis. These are, these are well-produced albums that that guy did for, for Soul Asylum. And obviously, that was a great sounding album. And then Throwing Copper by Live was also recorded at this studio by Jerry Harrison, uh, on production who was uh, of course a member of the talking heads so the, you know this this studio kind of out in the middle of absolutely nowhere you know had some history to it and it had a uh, you know some really good albums and some really good producers working their way through there and you know obviously nirvana tapped steve albini for this record which i'm sure we'll spend quite a bit of time talking about um as it's you know, a pretty important element of, 
you know, both the decision-making process, the direction that the band was looking for. And in a lot of ways, the result that they got. And um, so production will play into this discussion quite a bit. I'm sure the original title was I hate myself and want to die, which I, I think ended up being a song too, not on the album, but, and then they were going to call it verse course verse, which was just this, thing that Kurt seemed to have in his head all the time. I, I think that may have become a song as well. And then eventually settled in on In Utero. And obviously, you know, the album cover, the artwork, the whole kind of thematic, which also became a lot of their onstage presentation on that tour, was kind of around this and cut out, you know, body form and angel wings. I mean, it's a pretty iconic stuff. When you think of in utero, I think oftentimes you're either thinking of the Heart Shape Box video or you're thinking of the uh, album and onstage artwork that sort of coincided with with this. Uh, and Kurt was an artist. He was a visual artist. He was a, um, he did paintings and drawings and, you know, he was a very, very visual um, very talented, actually, you know, artists in addition to his music, which I actually, I think he probably would have ended up doing uh, if he was still alive more so than being involved in music. He might've been a little happier doing that. Although he, he, there's probably a number of things he could have been happier doing than being in the music business by the end. They were certainly two for two on imagery. If you think about just the sleeves, the design, uh, both Nevermind and In Utero contain brilliant images that became iconic. I mean, the the Nevermind album certainly uh, is one of the iconic album covers of all time. And but In Utero's sleeve certainly represents a little change in direction, and and as does the album. So I I get the vibe that Cobain was very thoughtful about the images that were associated with his music, um, which is the trademark of, of a good album artist for sure. Yeah. I mean, you know, Kurt was a true artist. I mean, there's no question about that. And I'm sure we'll spend some time during this episode, you know, poking fun at Kurt because we, we did that, you know, 25 years ago and we'll probably do it some today. Um, and I think there's plenty of fun to be poked. But but he was a true artist. I mean, he you know he he dug into his work as far as the collective, um, you know, and and wanting to kind of make it a, an artistic experience, which you know in, in many cases proved that you don't need to be terribly complicated to to, and you can still be melodic and and make an artistic statement. So I mean, certainly that's you know I think that's part of that was part of his appeal. Butch Vig did a miraculous job on Nevermind. I mean, which is an outstanding album, a very important album. But, you know, it's clear that Kurt kind of copped an attitude about the sort of lush, layered production of Nevermind and the pop sensibility and the, you know, all those things that sort of came out and, and made them what they were. Kurt was hell bent on trying to strip things down. And and going with Steve Albini, you know, who who prior to that point had done the Pixies album, um, Pod by the Breeders, uh, Goat by the Jesus Lizard, uh, the PJ Harvey record, Rid of Me. I mean, this was not a slick, polished producer. This was no, no. This was somebody who was interested in 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 bare bones, and Kurt wanted that. 
he couldn't, he could never avoid his curse of melody, um, which, which haunted his, his skill for melody sure haunted him. And he tried so hard to avoid it. Um, and I think picking Steve Albini was, was part of that effort to say all these bands that I used to love, you know, I want to be more, I want to be respected by them, you know, not by these uh, college kids coming to our shows. And, you know, there was a lot of that going on around that, that time period, but clearly they were looking to strip things down and, and go bare bones. And Albini was, I don't know that he was the best choice. Cause I personally liked when Nirvana was polished, <laughs> you know, and, and we'll get into heart shape box and all apologies and the Scotlet, you know, involvement in that whole thing, but understandable why they went in that direction. You know, if, if anybody's unfamiliar with Steve Albini, you listed some of the production elements, go listen to his band, big black. And, and you're going to learn exactly what, Kurt Cobain and the rest of the band were hearing when they chose him. And Big Black is this very experimental kind of punk, but just, just completely unique band. And that was Steve Albini's band. And if you listen to that, you'll, you'll really get a vibe for just how extreme of a decision it was for Nirvana to do this. They were the biggest band in the world at this moment and they chose to work with the guy from Big Black and the guy who worked with the Pixies and and the Breeders and some of these other bands. So again, everything they did with In Utero is making a statement. Uh, even more than the songs themselves, I think the, the album as a whole is really this big giant statement. And the question is, is it a statement that that resonates with people? And that lasts. And that's what we'll talk about. We'll get kind of deeper into it when we, when we drop the needle, but you know, the record company got pretty involved with two songs in particular, that being heart shape box and in all apologies and more or less forced the band to um, bring on Scott lit who worked with REM, who was, who, who always received Kurt's approval, you know, in, in Kurt's little circle of who he thought was okay. But, you know, Scott Litt, I mean, took these two tracks and, and really turned them into hits. So um, as much as In Utero was meant to be, you know, the kind of stripped down Steve Albini statement, in many cases, the two songs that really kind of define the record, really, if you, lo- if you listen to the original Steve Albini production of those two songs compared to what eventually got released on the album and released as singles, you know, Heart Shape Box and All Apologies sound a, a hell of a lot more like Nevermind than they do the remainder of In Utero. Oh, no doubt. Yeah, no doubt about it. I'm not even sure, even in studying this pretty closely here of recent, if I'm clear on whether or not the band was actually pleased with the outcome of in utero, in utero. It's hard to tell whether Kurt Cobain was pleased with anything. He, he's like the guy, he's like the guy that we all grew up with. If you were in music circles that like, you know, was at the coffee shop every night and hated everything except for the things that he loved, you know, and, and would tell you about it. I could just see him having those conversations before he became the biggest rock star in the world about all the bands who suck, but you know, that handful of bands that likely he discovered before anybody else, 
who he just thought were the greatest and would tell everybody that they were the greatest. I mean, he just, he reminds me of that guy getting unbelievably famous and unbelievably powerful and incredibly rich overnight. It's it, it. That's, that's what it feels like. And that's going to breed when you combine that with drug addiction and, and the other demons that he had, that's going to bring on a person that's very, very difficult to understand. And, uh, and even, you know, you look back at some of the interviews and, and as part of the research, I was trying to find some content from that era, you know, Dave, we, we kind of know Dave Grohl, as like the Foo Fighters front band with the sunny disposition. And, but you look back and he was kind of just the same way. I mean, he was kind of buying into this whole, you know, angry young man, Nirvana thing. He, he was clearly more fun loving than Kurt Cobain was, but it didn't feel at any point like he was about to really embrace the commercial success of Nirvana either. They all sort of seemed to adopt this, anti-popularity thing that so many people did during that era. And it's interesting. Now Dave Grohl has become kind of the rock and roll joy guy. You know, he's like the bringer of fun in every way uh, with his role as Foo Fighters and otherwise, and someone who's just done so much for rock music in the last 15, 20 years. But even then you could tell that Kurt's kind of the the culture that that band had was was one of great contradictions and incredible complexity, which are two words that you can really describe him with. Yeah, and of course, you know, famously, seven months later, you know, Kurt um, took his own life at his Seattle area home via shotgun um, after a very very near death experience in Rome. I believe it was two months earlier combining various narcotics with alcohol and slipping into a coma for what I remember being a couple days. Things were, things were certainly pretty dark at the end. And you know, when you, when you look back to your point about Dave Grohl, I mean, Dave Grohl was such a kid. He was, he was just a very impressionable kid. You know, they all were, band. they, they all were. They were young guys. I mean, what was Kurt when this album came out? 26 or something? I mean, these were really young guys, really like tender, sensitive young guys who were going through this, you know, an experience that while it has amazing highs and, and strengths is a little traumatic too, when you become that famous overnight. So yeah, they, they were pups. They were all pups. Yeah, certainly. I mean, and look, Chris Novichalik is a extremely intelligent, you know, he, he proceeded to be uh you know, a very heady, you know, kind of scholaristic kind of thinker who, you know, who got into, you know, political thought. And he, he's a, I, I think Chris is just a fascinating guy. Um, and, you know, but back then he was, you know, chucking bass guitars up in the air and hitting himself on the head, you know, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's like those of us that lived in that era and paid close attention. I can't think about that dude without thinking about that bass guitar incident at the MTV awards. I mean, every it was time. just like, it's every time it's, it's so synonymous with him. And I don't know if that, I wonder if that's something that he appreciates and reflects on with humor or resents, but I'm telling you that image of a big old tall kind of gumpy Chris Novoselic just getting drilled uh, in the head by his own bass 
I mean, I, I, I can still remember where I was when I was watching that. It's such a riot. And, you know, the, those, those were the days clear. I mean, obviously we would record um, MTV awards onto VHS. And I, I just remember rewinding that like 50 times in one sitting we just watched it over. I mean, it was just so funny. And the way he kind of, the way he kind of ran off the stadium, it was just, yeah, it was very <laughs> memorable. It totally um, was. But you know, Dave, I mean, Dave Grohl, I mean, he's just a different person back then. You know, you do, you do not think front man. Yeah. He was, he was, he was pretty shy, very impressionable. And the one, the one thing you certainly gather is, you know, Kurt was, was a, was a leader, you know, I mean, people followed him, people, you know, respected him in some cases, probably feared him. I mean, this was somebody who was in charge, who, um, was in full control of this band, uh, was in almost full control of this album. One of the things I found out that I'll kind of say, as we wrap up the deets section is, during the in utero tour, um, which obviously didn't last that long. Um, and this made me kind of like Nirvana even more. They brought Bobcat Goldweight on tour with them as an open yeah. act. I had to look like three times. I was like, really? And, and I guess Bobcat since has done some reflections and he'll talk about it and things like that. And I, I didn't, I didn't read much, many of those interviews, but I'm sure they're interesting. Kurt and the band. One thing you can say is they, you know, again, there's a little bit of a dichotomy here, but I think ultimately they didn't take themselves too seriously. And they did find some of the interpretations and some of the kind of obsession with their band and with their music, you know, they did find some humor in that and, and were pretty outspoken, particularly around this time period of, you know, kind of the absurdity of their popularity. And I, I, I don't think they ever, you know, maybe they should have let them change them a little bit more, but they, I certainly don't think they let that go to their heads. You know, he is a very, he was a very, very reflective guy. Like I said earlier, very sensitive, very dialed into surroundings and incredibly self-deprecating. I mean, one thing about Kirk Cobain is that with all of his complexity and some of the things that I, I do believe he enjoyed about being in charge and being powerful within the unit of, of Nirvana, uh, he was a very, very self-deprecating guy. And that came out in his writing, that came out in his approach to being a quote-unquote star. Um, and again, just, just so many contradictions, you know? But, but no question, I think humor was there. Irony was certainly there. He's certainly someone that recognized irony in, in a number of ways. And that's the thing is in utero really captures a lot of that. It captures a lot more about him than Nevermind probably did. Nevermind captured uh, the songwriting maybe a little bit better because of the things you mentioned with the production and kind of more the radio friendly aspect of it. But in utero probably captured more about him as a pure artist uh, out of the three albums that they did. All right, let's get to wonder stories. I think everybody 
at least in our you know age ish range has some kind of nirvana moment for a lot of these episodes it's it's probably going to be a little bit more unique as far as when you discovered this band or when you discovered this album or whatever it may be that we're focusing on but i think most people that appreciate music that you know were born sometime between 1970 and 19 85 probably have, you know, some kind of Nirvana moment. I have two. And the first was 1991. And I was at the roller rink in Canton, Michigan, the skating station. Does that still exist? Yeah, it does. Doesn't. Yeah. This was an interesting time for music. I, I think, you know, particularly when you're at the roller rink, it's, you know, colored me bad and it's Stevie B and it's, you know, it's kind of that odd period between hair metal and grunge, which kind of written in sort of this pop R&B direction. So we would have been, let's see, in sixth grade, fifth grade. Yeah. Six. Yep. And, you know, you, you go and that's typically what you hear. Well, that was the first time I heard Smells Like Teen Spirit. And kind of glad because you know it was through these big ass speakers and a big ass sound system and i remember i remember exactly where i was i mean i was 11 years old and i remember just literally feeling like somebody had punched me in the stomach it was like what is this how do i you know it was like if i go ask the guy at the booth you think i'll play it again It was a moment. I mean, it was a musical moment of, and it, it was literally, um, you know, 30 seconds into it. It's like, what is this? How do I get this? And how do I get more of this in, in my life? Because you had just never heard anything like that before. You just hadn't. There was nothing with that sound. There was nothing with that vocal. There was nothing with that melody. It was special. I don't know that I'll ever forget that. And I don't remember much from when I was 11. So that was kind of my getting hit over the head with a crowbar by Nirvana for the first time deal. And then the second kind of relates to in utero specifically. And it was what you mentioned earlier briefly, which was the live and loud special. And look, I wasn't a huge Nirvana fan. I don't think you were either. I mean, we weren't, we weren't Nirvana guy. I used to make fun of all the, you know, girls in junior high school that like obsessed and gushed over Kurt Cobain more so than being super into them. But it was New Year's Eve. I remember it was a, it was an MTV special. And I think, I think Cypress Hill was part of it. And come to find out later, Pearl Jam was supposed to be on the bill. And then I guess bailed at the last minute and opened things up for Nirvana. Um, but there was Cypress Hill, maybe one other band, I don't remember. But in hell, it was, you know, it was an MTV special. So we were we were tuning in. And I remember kind of thinking, eh, Nirvana, fine. They'll probably play some of their new stuff. Cool. They got this goofy new guitar player. Cool. This will be at least worth watching. And uh, I just remember being completely blown away by the performance. You know, it was unexpected. It was 
and, and you know, props to uh, MTV and those guys. I mean, because doing, you know, pulling that off on TV for a band like that isn't, isn't easy, but they came out and played a great set. Kurt had the, you know, the fans blowing in his hair and it was a very confident, very grounded performance by him and the band was on that night you get i mean you, you can all you gotta just look back you you see that that band did not always have good nights but they were on they wanted to give a good performance and it was probably the best live television concert during our time if they played a better show on that tour than that night i want to see it it was a stunning performance what the thing i remember most about that show is that I had no idea. This was long before the days of internet and and way before social media where you could find out things so easily and quickly. I remember not having a clue that Pat Smear was in the band until that night, until they walked out on stage. (laughs) I remember thinking like, who is this fourth guy? Because one of the whole things in Nirvana was the charm of just the three of them, you know? And it really was like, who is this guy? And what's his name? Like Pat Smear, you know, and you go on to find out his background and the whole thing kind of makes more sense. But yeah, the Kurt's Kurt's presence that night was like a plus. He looked like what he was supposed to be. And he sounded like what he was supposed to be. That was, that was that band that night reaching their full potential in a great stage, you know, for everybody to see because you know it wasn't long after before nirvana was gone how, how long was in utero out when they did that performance do you know i mean the album was out wasn't it yeah so the album came out in september and they 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 filmed live and loud a couple weeks before um new year's eve but but that was a new year's eve special so, yeah. so you know about three months but yeah, just a special, a, a really special performance. And I, I couldn't agree more. It really captured. It kind of made, you know, I was a bit of a Nirvana naysayer at that time. And it kind of made you, you know, kind of sit up and say, all right, these guys are pretty damn good. <laughs> you know, even if you, you sort of didn't want to. So very special performance. So do you have any, uh, any recollections on the band or, or with this album in particular? Well, I, w- I was at the same skating station the same night and remember hearing it, but it didn't have the same impact. I remember hearing it, Teen Spirit, and thinking, oh, th- this is certainly different. But, you know, the Metallica's Black album had been out for a month when Nevermind came out. And I was so into Metallica and so into that band that, number one, Teen Spirit, it, it, it wasn't as mind-blowing for me as it probably was for others, because I was already listening to, you know, pretty heavy, thick music, you know? So as raw as Teen Spirit was, and certainly different, I'm, I'm certainly not drawing any comparison between Nirvana and Metallica, but, but I, I was so enthralled with the Black Album that by the time Nevermind came out and, and these things started happening, it, it, it just didn't feel like anything that special. I owned it. You know, I had it on cassette and listened to it. And those singles are, were things that became incredibly familiar to anybody who listened to alternative rock radio during that time. But the, the band didn't have a tremendous impact on me. And I was much, much more in the Pearl Jam camp, you know, 
than the Nirvana camp. And if you remember, they were those were two separate camps. You were kind of in one camp or the other, really. I, of course, there were a lot of people who liked both bands, but Pearl Jam was making a, an incredible impact during the time of Nevermind. And by the time In Utero came out, Pearl Jam had released both 10 and Verses. And so for me, Nirvana was always just kind of that, that band that was uh, in the back seat compared to some of the other things that I was into. And because I had already listened to some fairly heavy guitar driven music, even just the sound of Nirvana didn't really do as much for me as it did for others. Um, you may have been distracted by the ladies. I, you know, you were much better with the gals back then than I was at the, at the, at the roller rink. So that may have been a factor as well. It could have been a factor, uh, but uh, yeah, it's probably a fact. So I, I might've been a little distracted. Yeah, I think I got dumped at the skating station twice. <laughs> yeah, I think we all got dumped at uh, one point or the other at the skating station. Yeah, it's kind of it was, where dumping happened. Yeah, that was kind of part of the experience, wasn't it? Let's, uh, let's put the needle on the record here. All right, this will be an interesting track by track. Um, so let's kick it off right here with the opening track of 1993's In Utero, Serve the Servants. So Kurt comes out with his, it makes his, you know, anti-commercial odyssey statement here. By coming out with a bouncy, you know, alt riff <laughs> that sounds like, you know, Paul Westerberg wrote it. While, you know, kind of ironically pairing that with nubs, neither you or I are big lyric guys. I think that'll be part of what, you know, what we'll kind of explore a little bit during, during these episodes. But I do think the opening line of Teenage Inks has paid off well. No, I'm bored and old is, is classic and important and and it's a line that you notice but you know then of course proceeds to to sort of lyrically capitalize on every ounce of teen angst possible throughout the remainder of this of this album so again more of the conflicted nature of of kurt i'm not sure if it's you know some complicated you know artistic duality expression or if it's kurt just being kind of an annoying mess like he often was. It's pretty self-aware. I mean, it, it, it's a pretty astute opening line from a lyrical perspective of the guy who was fronting the biggest band in the world, releasing perhaps the most anticipated album ever made. You know, there are kind of two kinds of Kurt lyrics. You know, one of them I really like, and that's, you know, the, it, it, you can tell Kurt was very influenced by John Lennon. You know, he, he, was, a, he was a John Lennon guy. And this kind of element of, of playing with words in a lot of ways, the way John Lennon used to, which he did a lot on Nevermind and did in some cases here on In Utero. I always thought he was very good at that. Very clever, very artistic. When Kurt got into his sad sack Kurt stuff, at the time I thought it was kind of stupid, kind of dumb to use a, 
track that we'll talk about in a little while. Even at 14 or 13, it was agonizing to hear. And this was not just Kurt Cobain. This was kind of a, you know, think about it. This was kind of a culture of the Seattle bands was this sort of, I want everything and then I get everything and then I no longer want everything. And that was so agonizing as a young teenage musician. You know, that, that is one thing that did not resonate with me and still does not about Kurt Cobain is, is this whole notion of I'm an incredibly talented artist who finally got some much deserved attention for my art. And now uh, I'm pissed off about it. And I remember that being just as annoying at 13 as it is uh, today. Going back and listening to it, you just, you hear so much of that in what he's doing. And I think it's a great observation that that is like one half of his lyrics. And the other is fun wordplay and typically talking about bodies and things like that. You know, what do you think was Kurt's biggest curse out of these three things? A heroin B Courtney love or C his gift for melody. (laughs) I would say a, Oh, Okay. I, see, I would go with C. Yeah. I think that Kurt wanted so badly, and this is kind of to your point earlier about the coffee shop guy. Usually the coffee shop guy doesn't write pop hooks. Kurt did, and he couldn't escape it. He couldn't avoid it. I mean, even on this record, you know, this was supposed to be the middle finger, as you said. And it's not. Yeah. It's not. It's melodic. It's catchy. I think he just, as much as he hated it and tortured himself over it, this was his gift. You can't pretend you didn't write in bloom. You know, you, you can't just say, uh, oh, that's not me. I mean, that clearly was him. You, you can't pretend like you didn't write come as you are. I mean, these are magnificent pop hooks and you can add as, as many grungy guitars and loud drums and, and all these things to it. There's still going to be pop songs. So it's a great observation, but this song is certainly an embodiment of that. I mean, it's a, this is a pop song. You could hear many, many four piece uh, pop rock groups or uh, hell, you you could you could have a boy band cover this melody if you really just break it down to what it is. I mean, it's it's very very melodic and very poppy. Track two, Setless Apprentice. A um, in some ways a historic. Nirvana track in that I I think it was the only album track. So there were a couple of things on Incesticide, but the only album track where all three of the guys got writing credit. It's a little unclear who wrote what. I, I certainly Dave came up with the drum beat and the and the guitar riff. 
which Kurt basically shit on later. <laughs> As he does. <laughs> Kurt called it a cliche drum beat and, and riff and proceeded to say, I think most of the reason that song sounds good is because of the singing style and the guitar parts I do over the top of the basic rhythm. I mean, that, that's a direct quote from Kurt Cobain. So, you know, his bandmates finally get writing credit and he basically proceeds to take full credit for the development of the song. It sounds like Chris developed, I guess, what's sort of a, there's not really a chorus to it, but it's a bridge type section that apparently um, Chris came up with. The working title of this song was Chuck Chuck Fofuck, which is kind of that do do da do. Um, I assume is where they came up with that. So, so a, a very important song on the record, I guess that brings up two questions that I'm kind of interested in your take on nubs. The first is, do we kind of think that this is, you know, what the, what the future of Nirvana may have been or may have sounded like in that, you know, there was collaboration and there was, I do think this is probably the albiniest song on this record and it's kind of rawness. I think it's one where he was the appropriate producer and actually did a really good job on this particular track. So do we think this is kind of the future of where this band was headed? And second question is, do you think, do you think Chris and Dave liked Kurt? Both great questions. Uh, in <laughs> terms of the first one, no, I don't think this was the future of Nirvana because I think the future of Nirvana was no future. If Kurt Cobain is still alive today, I think Nirvana doesn't last past 1996. It's very clear that Dave Grohl had a tremendous amount of music in him. And if you look at, it took two albums to just get one song with some writing credit from the others and do something a little bit collaborative. And then Kurt kind of pisses on it, you know, within months of the release of it that kind of shows you what the atmosphere was there. And that's not history has proven that Dave Grohl is, is a guy who kind of wants to play Wembley arena and doesn't mind having the ego ramp come off the stage. He, he loves being a rock star. And I mean that in the greatest of ways, I think Dave Grohl is like the coolest guy in rock, but he embraces everything that's great about being a rock musician. Uh, that that clearly was in there and that would have come out at some point. Not to mention that, you know, within months or maybe just a year or two after Nirvana ending, you know, here he comes with this cassette tape called Foo Fighters with these just excellent songs that he was sitting on that, you know, he didn't think anybody in Nirvana or in the Nirvana camp would ever even want to touch. So, no, I don't think this was the future of Nirvana. I think the future of Nirvana was no future. It's clear that the group dynamics were not sustainable and that the personalities were not sustainable, which would bring me to the answer of question number two. And I think the answer is no. I've never gotten the sense that the other members, you know, speak incredibly warmly about him as a person. I think they have warmth about the era. If you watch Sound City and you hear... Dave talk about Nirvana. I think that the Nirvana experience had a profound impact on him in every single way. It was life-changing for him. His musical path would never be the same. But in terms of like very clear 
kind of affirmation and affection for Kurt Cobain. I've never really picked up on that from the other members. And he probably was a pretty hard guy to, to have affection for. So you don't think Kurt would have ever gone through like a prog phase, you know, like <laughs> kind of all of a sudden listened to like fragile or something and been like, Oh my God, this is, you know, he clearly was very influenced. I mean, you know, the, the meat puppets covers and the unplugged session and the, the David Bowie cover. And I don't think he lacked proper, you know, influences, but it is interesting to think of, I don't see that, that he would have really expanded. I mean, I, you know, there are some, when I think of like Leonard Skinnerd, that's a band that they, those guys would have been great. I mean, if you listen to kind of where they were going and the way they were kind of expanding, I mean, I, I think, Oh yeah, they were going to do something. I, I just, I'm not sure that Kurt was, you know, tremendous gift for melody and a tremendous gift for simplicity. I, I'm not sure I ever see him going experimental or progressive in any way. And I guess we'll never know. I could see experimental in kind of a noise rock sort of way or something that was more avant-garde on the alternative side. You got the thing about Kurt, you got to remember he didn't have chops, you know, and, and I don't think he emulated people with chops. You know, Nirvana came along a lot like the Sex Pistols came along in the late seventies to sort of destroy the bands with stark musicality and, and all these sort of things that some of the bands that were their predecessors had. Nirvana came along to ruin that. So all of a sudden for Kurt to wake up one day and all of a sudden become that, that idea of becoming something that he was set to destroy is very unlikely. And the fact that he really didn't have great musical abilities. I'll tell you what though, there was something about the way he played the guitar for sure. He didn't have chops and he wasn't about to, you know, bust out a blues solo or anything like that. But there was, and, and I've always tried to figure out, I don't, I'm not sure if it was stylistic, but the way he would play power chords and open chords, I, he's a guy that I really enjoy watching play the guitar. And it's not because, you know, he can go out there and be Steve Vai, you know, before Pat Smear, he was obviously handling all the guitar duties and, you know, there was, there was some feel there. There was kind of a percussive nature to the way he would play chords. And, you know, he got some pretty cool clean tones and really liked chorus effect. And I, I enjoy watching Kurt Cobain play guitar quite a bit. Well, hey, that makes one of us. <laughs> I don't, uh, I don't know. I think he was a writer. I think he was a gifted songwriter who struck gold, uh, and this song's a good example. I mean, Scentless Apprentice is, it's like the epitome of dumb rock. I mean, I hate to say I agree with Kurt Cobain on what he had to say about his, his uh, bandmates, but I mean, the song is quite dumb when you think about it. It's just sort of a, a very blah kind of riff. I remember on Live and Loud, the drum intro was really cool. I, remember, I still can see Grohl playing it and thinking, oh, this is huge. And then the song really doesn't go anywhere. It's sort of repetitive and, and it never gets you to a certain level. That middle section is kind of cool the way it elevates. But aside from that, it, yeah, it, it's, it's just dumb rock to me. 
this song is is rather famous in in Nirvana history for the fact that while playing it in Sao Paulo, he proceeded to spit on the camera on the side of the stage, which he did that a lot, but also exposed himself to uh, said camera. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's get to heart shaped bucks. I'm sure there are other songs where they went drop D. I I can't really think of any though. Um and I don't think they did it very often. An interesting um song here from a production standpoint. We kind of touched on it earlier, but would Steve Albini's original mix have been a hit? Probably not if you listen to it. Um there were no layered vocals, there were no harmonies. It's very thin. And then of course Scott Lake got a hold of it and turned it basically into a Bob Rock song. Uh, which became a huge hit and is a great recording. I mean, it's a badass song. It kind of calls into question a little bit of, you know, how much did this band rely on production? Because I don't think with Albini's production, this song is terribly memorable. No, no. They, they rely tremendously on production. I mean, you you made great points earlier about Butch Vig. I mean, just vital with Nevermind. Like the fourth member, you know, and without the Scott lit production on these, I, I agree with you. I don't think they hold the same weight. You got to remember the, remember the role of radio in 1993, things had to sound good on the radio. That's where most people were discovering music. And the other place was on MTV. I mean, the first place I heard heart shaped box was, was far and away the premiere of the video, which was an event. So you had to create sounds that sounded good over FM radio and sounded good over TV speakers. And that's why Litz mixes were, were really important. The elements that he added to both Heart Shape Box and All Apologies, but certainly with Heart Shape Box, helped make that an MTV hit and a radio hit. Listen back to Albini's mixes. They're, they're very interesting. They're very stripped down. They're actually very loud, but they're loud in a way that has many of the elements that became known to your point, the vocal harmonies, really important part of the song. They're not there. And so there's no question this band relied heavily on production. There's no doubt about it. It's a wonderfully produced song by, by Scott Litt. And you listen to the Albini version and it's, it's, just, it's just missing all those things. It's terribly unmemorable. There, there's some great bass work in here by yes. Chris Novichalik. And I, you know, I assume Kurt came up with those lines. I'm not you know, exactly sure how that dynamic worked, but there's some excellent, I mean, was Chris important to this band? I mean, you know, you go back and look at their live stuff and he really did have nice groove as a bass player. You know, he was, he pocketed nicely with, with Grohl. I don't know how he played that damn thing down at his shins. He's like six foot 10. Yeah. But do you think it was important in, in his kind of playing dynamic to this band? Sure. Yeah. I mean, super important rhythm section element with him and Grohl. They, they locked in very well. Chris knew exactly what to play, how to play along with Grohl's bass drum. Um, They're a great rhythm section, very big, powerful rhythm section. So yeah, of course he's important. And again, he's not an Olympian athlete as at his instrument. None of them really were. I mean, as great as Grohl is at this time, you know, he was still a very young pounding drummer. You know, this is 
them crooked vultures is is a long ways away from this Nirvana era for Dave Grohl, uh, just as purely as a drummer. And so, yeah, it's it's very important, very important. But but none of that matters if you don't have Kurt's the the vocal melody on this song is so haunting and so sweet. You know, if you if you ever just took the vocals and just isolated them and just imagine like a soft piano playing them. And, and and it just explains exactly what Kurt was after really with all of his songs that were both commercial and non-commercial. It's these sweet lyrical melodies on top of these grinding, heavy, thick guitars. And the other thing that really stands out about this song easily is the loud, quiet, loud dynamic, this whole Pixies thing that Kurt was so heavily influenced by. Heartshaped Box epitomizes the dynamics that Nirvana was known for. It's a really important song and uh, uh, not just to this record, but really to the time period and with a very iconic video and, you know, what can be said. Uh, Rate me. I don't know to quote the great, you know, Bill Simmons. I don't know if this is a heat check. I don't know if this is car blanche. Let, you know, let's see what we can get away with. There's an element of this in its simplicity and in its content that just make it a fascinating song. Question is, is it a good song? Uh, an A, a C, an E and a G. I mean, that's, literally beginner guitar stuff and obviously you know very catchy and the intent of the song is more i think about the the content and the shock value it was a hit i guess the question is is it does it hold up is it a good song no it doesn't for me i i couldn't stand this song when i first heard it this was that trademark whiny kind of curt thing that you know, represented everything that I didn't like about Nirvana. If, if Scentless Apprentice is, is dumb rock, this is like double dumb rock. You know, the, the riff is, it just never does anything interesting. It's so repetitive. The vocal melody is one of the worst that I think he ever wrote in every way, verse, chorus, everything else. Um, and the lyrical content is just, you know, it, it, it's shock. I think you're right. I think it's what can we get away with? And as I mentioned near the top of the of tonight of, of the show today, like, you know, this became a hit and how it was a big, it was a big hit. They played it on Saturday night live. It was, yeah. I kind of had the same feelings. I remember kind of thinking if you like that song, you're just going to like whatever these guys do. Yeah, exactly. You know, it it kind of got beyond at that point any you know sort of critical viewpoint on this band it was sort of like if you're you know tapping your foot to rape me then you're just i mean you're all in and <laughs> yeah yeah now yeah. i do like at the end when he's when he's screaming and and girls going nuts i mean i you know it's it's a good I, scream at the end i will, I I will hate, give it yeah up. i don't i don't hate the song but it's um i think it kind of proved that there was a time period 
where this band could probably do no wrong. This was this was written during Nevermind. So this was actually an old song, which is interesting that they, you know, sort of dusted off for in utero. And also apparently he was Kurt Cobain was holding his like four month old Francis Bean on his lap while he was laying down the lyrics to rape me in the studio, which is <laughs> that's like the ultimate Kurt Cobain story. It really sounds like something almost more off bleach. I mean, it, it it's so it's like a, it's, it sounds like a garage band song. It sounds like something that kids write when they first get guitars and they're 12 years old in a garage, you know? And with Kurt, as always, you just never know. I mean, was that the point or was it just, was it just him being him? Yeah. Frances Farmer will have her revenge on Seattle, which at this time was a really long song title. I mean, this was an era of, of you know, the 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 one word uh, song title. You know, was very uh, was very chic at this time. So, you know, to have a song title this long was was actually quite unique. Admittedly, until like a couple weeks ago, I thought this song was about his daughter, Francis. Oh Francis yeah, Bean. yeah, and. In in digging a little bit further on this this album for this the purpose of this episode, I realized that Frances Farmer was this actress, you know, from Seattle who was a hot mess in the 1940s and was in and out of rehab and psychiatric confinement, and she punched a police officer after getting a court sentence and. She was given shock therapy. They thought that maybe she received lobotomy treatment. Yeah, you know, um, you know who she was. She was Kurt Cobain. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that, that, she, that, that's who Francis Farmer was. That, that's the that's what's that's the irony of this song. When she got arrested prior to that and was filling out her information, she listed her occupation as cocksucker. Now, in the forties, <laughs> that's pretty. That's pretty funny. But clearly this this woman was pretty mental. So I love this song. I, I think yeah. that this is a little bit of a, a kind of a hidden gem. I, I always just thought it was because of the, the title. I didn't really ever dig too much into it. But, you know, I think uh, you got a little tambourine there in the middle section, which is very Beatles-esque during a middle eight. And, uh, you know, it's a little bit of a sad sack Kurt lyric with I miss the comfort of being sad, you know, which on its own is kind of whatever Kurt, but maybe there was more context to this related to this story about Francis, but really, really cool progressions on this. I think it's maybe the most well-crafted song on the album as far as really unique progressions and a really cool chorus i kind of wish he didn't repeat the same line over and over again i kind of wish there was variation in that chorus lyric but i really dig this song i love this song i I think it's one of the strongest songs in the album great title interesting story behind it strong riff you know just big strong riff at every part of the song i think it's great i think Grohl totally comes through with just i mean what a dave Grohl crashing drum part 
you know, I think easily one of the strongest points of the album. I love this song. Let's get dumb. So for me, this is kind of the, this is kind of one of those, you know, you know, there, there are just certain songs where it's just like, okay, Kurt, I mean, I, I get it. And this, you know, repetitive, I think I'm dumb. And I love the music, uh, love the composition. I think the cello is fantastic. Yeah. Um, lyrically it's ridiculous. It's, it's more of your standard, you know, Kurt Cobain and the pain. You know, the pain of being Cobain, you know, but from a purely musical perspective, I, I, I think that I think the cello and the whole idea of it is great. I do think this is one that really comes through on the unplugged performance. I think that I have always felt that unplugged performance, some elements of it are very overrated and some of the elements of it are as good as advertised. This song is probably as good as advertised. I mean, the unplugged performance of this song is fantastic. I was going to ask you when we got to all apologies, I guess we'll do it now. I mean, do we like the unplugged in New York? I mean, I've, what do you think? I think I'm torn. Okay. I'm torn on this one. I, yeah, I think it's okay. I think that to hear some of those things done in that context was really cool. I remember being stunned at how light Dave Grohl could play from a drummer's perspective. And he was using those, those they're called hot rods, but those sticks that play real quiet. I just remember how tight he played and um, Kurt playing that multicolored guitar. I mean, the, the whole imagery of it was, was very moving, you know, it was all candlelit, very atmospheric, yeah. but in terms of like a pure listen, I I'll, I'll always be blown away at how, how many albums that performance sold people just enjoyed listening to it. I thought there was something to the whole visual of it, I, but from a pure audio perspective, I thought it was okay. I Kurt's vocals were, were hot and cold. If you really look, listen to it kind of with a critical ear, but certainly the way that they thoughtfully maneuvered some of those songs into acoustic versions, I, I you know, I think had some interest to it. What did you think of it? I, I respect the hell out of it, but I, I don't know that I'd ever listen to it. I get it. Um, I think it's held up well, but as far as, you know, popping it in and giving it a run through, you know, probably not. If yeah. that's possible, I'm kind of speaking out of both sides of my mouth on that one, but it's, I think that's kind of the best way to frame it up. The Unplugged series, I think all of them were pretty hot and cold. If you look at it, I, I can't think of, one unplug that was just perfect all the way around because, but, but it was very interesting. It was cool to see. It was very cool to see Nirvana in that context. And for a lot of people, it's one of the last, you know, images that people had of the band. I can think of one that was perfect. Pearl Jam. <laughs> Negative. Neil Young. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good call. Neil Young. Now granted, you know, that was a little bit in his wheelhouse, but that unplugged performance is really good. That's a great call. Yeah, uh, that's a, that, I totally agree. Very ape. Clearly part of the approach to this record was to, you know, combine, uh, you know, I, I forget what he, he called it, candy pop or bubblegum pop or whatever. 
um, sort of making fun of his own melodic tendencies with some of these noisy bits. And I don't really know if they liked this song. I'm sure most fans don't care for this song and saw it as filler. It's a minute 55. So I think more than anything, you know, when you look at this and you look at Tourette's and, you know, a couple other kind of moments within the album, just really an excuse to kind of make some noise and probably the type of song that Albini loved and no one else did. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's important to to remember the, um, the sequence here is, is something to keep in mind because the original album, it, it was pressed on vinyl in 1993 in utero, got the full treatment, uh, worldwide, in terms of original vinyl pressing and very ape starts side two. And that's one thing that we'll always keep in mind. I think here on, on the podcast is, is the sequence of songs and the flipping of the sides. And so I think that you have to remember that it is this short riffy thing that they did, but it really kicks off side two and side two is, quite different from side one in a number of ways. So I just see it as the kickoff to side two. Interesting. I see it as a minute 55 filler. Let's do milk it. I think this song is rad. Um, doll steak test meat i mean come on that's now we're now we're doing lyrics now we're writing stuff here (laughs) doll steak um i think it's a really cool track you know again i would have the same question of and it's a rhetorical one but is this the future of that band is this you know there's some off-tempo stuff i really like it I I I'm sure it's not a fan yeah. favorite, but I, I think it's a great track. I totally agree. I think it is too. I, I'd put this in Francis Farmer uh, up there in terms of probably the the pinnacle on the album, just from a pure musical standpoint. They're doing some things here that they certainly didn't do on Nevermind. Um, this is the one track on the album that feels like they were taking a step forward. Whereas a lot of the the other album feels like they're taking a step backward musically now, probably intentionally and to the point of all of our discussion here about Kurt, you know, trying his very best to, to get that street cred of being a, a punk rocker or, or whatever, um, more simple than the pop star that he had become. But to me, this song, if, if this was the future of the band, if I'm wrong and if the band would have continued this would have been a great direction, a little more sludginess, uh, a little more interesting things with, with timing and tempo and just a big, you know, kind of dark riff. Yeah. I think Bill great. Love the song. Track nine, Penny Royalty. I'm on my time with everyone. So we got, Bad posture, anemic, laxatives, antacid. You know, it, it's a glimpse into a lot of what was overlooked about Kurt. I mean, this, this guy was not in good health. No. Um, no. 
and you know, of course, you know, it gets into the, some of the substance abuse and what came first and all these type of things, but the stomach issues, the, you know, a lot of the physical issues. I mean, this was, you know, Kurt was very into this whole kind of sort of idea of medicine, biology, you know, you could tell that this was a, a, an area of things that fascinated him. You know, I see the purpose of the song of sort of this idea of royalty. You know, it's kind of like, you know, hey, I'm royalty now, but, you know, but my body's all messed up. And it's a little bit of a glimpse into that, I think, and very personal. This is kind of more in that John Lennon style of wordplay with, with Penny Royalty but also very personal is a very, obviously a very personal song by Kurt, very descriptive. I love this song. I think that, 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 that this and the, and the next track are the, the high points of this, this record, I think. And I think side two of this album is really, really interesting. This was one of the highlights of live and loud that oh, we e- talked about easily, earlier. Easily. And the, with, the live version of this is just blistering. I mean, it is just huge. With really, really good harmonies from Pat Smear. Yep. Which, you know, uh, you don't really think, I mean, Pat Smear never sings with Foo Fighters and rarely sing with Nirvana, but boy, he really helped this song live. And, you know, we touched on him earlier a little bit. I mean, Pat Smear never really got the opportunity to be terribly effective or important, you know, to this band if you go back and listen to the germs, their one album, which is outstanding. And you kind of, you know, see the, the sort of respect that, that he had from the, you know, sort of punk type of community. It's actually pretty cool that Kurt brought him into the band. And it's even cooler that Dave brought him along for the Foo Fighters. And I think he's, you know, brings a, a pretty important element to them. I'm not sure of the, comp- the, the Foo Fighters, the way the Foo Fighters compose is always a mystery. Was Pat Smear important to this band or is he important just in the kind of overall music sphere between Nirvana and Foo Fighters or is he just a great personality that's kind of along for the ride? I, I would say that whatever, the, whatever day it was that Pat Smear met Kurt Cobain and Dave Grohl was an important day in his life. Cause you know, until then he was like a, you know, kind of a punk guy, very, very underground. And then he went on to be in two of the biggest bands of the last 30 years, you know? So I, whatever day that happened, I'm sure is a day that he's got circled on, uh, on his calendar. Yeah. He, he was important. He's very important to Foo Fighters. He, he brings the Foo Fighters a tremendous amount of, of credibility kind of right from the start. In terms of Nirvana, you know, he never recorded with them. And, and I think the, the In Utero tour, I, I don't know a lot of people that made it to those shows. It was, if you remember, it wasn't a huge run and they played like small venues and you had to really be lucky to get into one of those. You never saw him, did you? I never saw him. Live. No. But I mean, you, you and I have been doing absurd amount of concerts and yeah. you, you, neither of us have seen Nirvana. Never really had a chance to. I mean, it, it wasn't even an option. So, so yeah, I mean, it, it's, hard to, it's hard to quantify in any way his role in Nirvana, but certainly his role in getting to know Dave Grohl and, and Kurt Cobain, it was certainly transformational for him as an artist. Penny Royalty received some, some criticism um, 
in sort of the opposite direction from David Frick, the Rolling Stone guy who, you know, disagree with 85% of the time. But, but I think you made a good point here. He, he criticized the sort of underproduction of Penny Royalty. And, you know, I think he kind of said, he, he, he deemed it a call Butch Vig moment um, as part of his review and basically saying that that song had tremendous potential and almost implying that Albini kind of took a song like that and, and made it go backwards rather than forwards and it's sort of full potential. And yeah. I kind of agree with that. I do too. I think the, the intro of the song tells that. I mean, you've got a pretty understated Kurt singing a pretty understated line over an incredibly understated acoustic guitar. You know, n- nothing about that intro is there to grab a listener. Sure as hell not on FM radio. Um, that song absolutely could have been a gigantic hit. It's a favorite. I mean, I, just like you and I, I don't think anybody would listen to In Utero and not have, you know, Penny Royalty stand out. I mean, it, it's very much a standout track in spite of its lack of production. I, I, I actually, you won't hear me say this much on this podcast. I agree with David Frick completely on that one. I think he's dead on. Same. Radio-friendly unit shifter. Ah, what a title. I mean, this is a hilarious song title, first of all. And I thought forever that it said radio-friendly unit shitter. I mean, for years I thought that. But then I, you know, it's like, oh, it's Shifter, and he, and he's talking about, you know, they call units records albums in the in the biz. But again, the irony, one of his true gifts, calling this song, which is the least commercial song of the album, probably maybe aside from Very Ape, and calling it Radio Friendly Unit Shifter. It's just, it's one of the great titles. It's a it's one of it those really examples. Is. The title is much better than the song. Now. What's cool about this song is they opened with it on the In Utero tour and that live and loud captures it. And it's a killer opener. I mean, oh, yeah. it really is. And when they opened with it on live and loud, I remember watching it and being like, wow, like, wow. Like they, they didn't open with, you know, anything obvious at all. They came out with this song that's sort of buried on side two of the, of the album, but man, what a great title and a cool riff. I mean, a, a cool kind of rollicking song, you know, it is a good song, but I think the title is better than the song. Yeah. I think, I think Penny royalty into this, um, are, is the strong point of the album. I mean, it's really yeah. getting, you're really getting hit over the head, you know, twice. And, and I, you know, completely agree. I, I, I never hear this song without thinking of, of live and loud and, and this being the opener and, you know, boy, they just, it wasn't the type of set where you had to get three songs into it to know that they were on. You knew that they were on about 30 seconds into this, you know, when Kurt hits the verse, very, very memorable from that standpoint. So yeah, I, I dig, I dig this song. I think it jams. Um, and obviously uh, very memorable as being the opener to live and loud Tourette's. <laughs> Which again, kind of just goes along with the kind of like very ape. You're looking at, you know, kind of this execution of a noise rock track. Never really thought much of it. It's a minute 35 and uh, it almost seemed like they needed something to kind of bridge between uh, 
a very strong run in milk at Penny Royalty and, and Radio Friendly to sort of uh, get you ready for the finale. Yeah, it's the very ape of side two. Filler track next. Dave Grohl said when he heard this song that he said, this guy has such a beautiful sense of melody. I, I can't believe he's screaming all the time. <laughs> it's like, Hey, Dave Grohl, have you heard yourself live? Yeah. Right. I mean, that, I, I've had the same question for Dave Grohl. Why are you screaming, yeah, why are you yeah. screaming all the time? You know, that first Foo Fighters uh, album has, quite a bit of screaming on it if i remember correctly well it's more so live you know he'll, he'll be on these these really beautiful impactful you know chorus hooks or whatever it is in one of his best foo fighter songs and instead of singing it he'll yell it so it's yeah. kind of funny to see him criticize kurt for that that is that is funny but uh listen i I think this is a fine song. I think it's fairly overrated. This is way up there on, if you look at the best songs lists of Nirvana as rated by fans and critics, all apologies is way, way up there. It's a, it's a nice closer. It makes a lot of sense. The, um, the unplugged version was really the big hit and, and one that was very um, haunting and, and very, uh, I think probably captured the song I would guess more so the way that, that Kurt wanted it captured. It, it's a, it's a cool closer. I like that it jams. Um, this was another one that Scott Litt took over and you can kind of sense that in, in the production as far as layering and, you know, vocal harmonies and, and, and some of those things. So, I mean, look, it's a great closer. I think it's a bit overhyped and just in of itself, and uh, it's probably one of those where I do think the unplugged version is sort of the quintessential version of this song. Yeah, I, I think I agree with most of that. The unplugged version does stand out. Um, I think that this song holds tremendous significance being the last song on the last album. And from a lyrical and thematic perspective, I think most people would see this as, as Kurt Cobain sort of saying goodbye and uh, so for, for hardcore Nirvana fans, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised. I think this song holds a near and dear spot in the hearts of many. For me, it, it's actually just kind of a, a dull way to end the album. I, I don't put it up there with some of the other things we've talked about tonight, but I do respect and understand its significance. All in all is all we are, um, which really kind of, you know, closes up the, the album in inappropriate fashion. Kurt every now and again will come out with a line when it's not all about him and, and how uh, malcontent he is with life. And he'll say something that really grabs you. And I think that that's a, a really uh, interesting way to, to end the album lyrically. So, you know, really quick, just touching on, you know, did it matter, which is kind of how we're going to wrap up a lot of these, you know, specific album discussions is, is this, uh, I think we can all agree. It's a very important band. Is this an important album? It's an important album because it's the last one and it, it asks more questions than it does answer questions. And that's always the mark of a good piece of art. 
it's so tragic and unfortunate the circumstances that resulted in this being the last album, even though, as we've talked about, I still think it would have been the last Nirvana album. I think you can hear the band breaking up track by track on this record, but no question. It's important. It's, it's important for the conversations that it starts uh, more so than the conversations that it puts a bow on with this episode being a good example. You know, there, there's so much you could dive into and so many things that you can uh, learn from it and take from it as a piece of work. Not a perfect album by any means musically, but certainly important, no doubt about it. What do you think? Is it important? I would agree. Yeah, I, you know, it's a it's a tremendously important band. It's a, you know, medium important record, I think, top to bottom on its own uh, with some really, really good moments. You know, I, again, I'm not sure if the band accomplished exactly what it wanted to with this. I, I, I probably would have liked to have seen a different producer on this work. But, you know, I think, I think Butch Vig could add a field day with some of this stuff, but, but I think it, it matters. And uh, we get into the final cut here, which is uh, again, where we say on the turntable in the collection, collecting dust or for sale, Ben, um, where would you rate this one? Nub? Tof Nirvana's in utero is in the collection. No doubt about it. I think it deserves a spot in the collection of any music fan, I think it lacked the completeness to become anything that would be considered a classic. And certainly anybody that takes this to the sale bin is crazy. So very firm in the collection for me. Where do you got it? I have it at collecting dust. And uh, that is not necessarily because I um, disrespect uh, the importance of the album, but it's just one that, you know, I, I don't really think has, fully held up over time. I think it's really important to revisit, but as far as an album that I'm going to be uh, popping in regularly, as I've introduced my seven-year-old boy to Nirvana, I, uh, I would introduce him via Nevermind rather than via In Utero. Um, so again, important album, but for me, it's collecting dust in that, you know, I'm not sure that as time goes on and, and uh, you know, I go into the next few decades of, of my life, um, that it's an album that I'll feel the need to revisit too often. Excellent. Excellent. Well, for, hey, at least for neither one of us, this one isn't headed to the sale bin, you know. Indeed. Indeed. All right. Let's wrap up with, uh, with uh, what's in your head. You want it again? I do. Yeah, it's the best, best drop ever. <laughs> Should we just do it one more time? Well, I think so. Yeah, that's what's in my head right now. That's pretty good. All right, All right. Well, this is uh, this is a, a song. So we did it. We do albums to kick off the episode. We do songs to wind down the episode. What uh, what three songs are on your radar now? Yeah, in my head right now is "Love Rain or Me" by The Who off Quadrophenia. Hmm. "Be My Wife" by David Bowie from Low. And Drift and Die from Puddle of Mud off of Come Clean. Boy, that is a nice eclectic mix. I like it. What's in your head? Should I play it again? Or? <laughs> we'll spare everybody. Uh, there's a song by the Jason Bonham band uh, off of the Lost Art of Timekeeping called Holding On Forever that has become one of my favorite songs. It is just a tremendous rock song, really, really well 
produced, well well sung, amazing harmonies. It is a tremendous song by Jason Bonham in the early 90s. Uh, the second is a song by Silver Sun Pickups, who I was supposed to see earlier this year and got uh, uh, got the old COVID-19 cancellation, but hopefully they'll be back in the fall off their latest album called Widow's Weeds, a song called Straw Man, which is... Uh, which is one of the finest on that album. And then the last one is Don't Look Back by Boston, uh, which is a song that I find myself kind of revisiting every few years and just realizing is perhaps the best song they ever made. Um, I think so. I think it is. Just absolutely outstanding. So, Oh, that, um, uh, that middle, that oh. middle breakdown is just so good. Insane. That's insane. So that one's, uh, I've been, I've been pretty hot on that one. So look, um, we wanted to start out with an album that had a lot of context to it, that, that had certainly a lot of history to it, a lot of opinions surrounding it. You know, hopefully you found it interesting. It was really a fun one to revisit track by track because, you know, you hear heart shaped box and you hear all apologies and you hear a couple of these other things, but to really kind of, dissect the album and try and put it in its, you know, place of importance for what is a, an extremely important band. Not many closing thoughts. Ah, this was fun, man. We'll see you guys again soon. And with that, we will see you in episode two. Y'all take care. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.